The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. On Monday morning when I was in Kentucky, I got up and went into the kitchen of my sister's house for breakfast and Lauren came in from the bedroom with her cell phone in her hand and she said, Santa Rosa is on fire. And from that point, it was a constant searching for information, trying to find out what was happening, how serious the fires here were. We heard the news about Kaiser and and Sutter hospitals being evacuated, and then about Fountain Grove and the loss of homes there, and then how the fire jumped the freeway and was uh, had gone through a coffee park. And then we even heard that our neighborhood had been evacuated, and we didn't find out for a day or so that that wasn't true. And I know that, as we've already spoken today, that each of you has been impacted by the fires you don't really need to, for me to rehearse to you how all of that developed. You were here. You know all the fears and the anxieties that, that came from that, wondering who, what, where, and what was going on. And so I think that every family in our church in some way or another has been affected, whether with your own homes, and thankfully we have found out that, or believe that no one has lost their home, but family and friends and co-workers as Eric mentioned earlier today, uh, 50 families in his uh, workplace affected by this and losing their homes. But I also find that amid this disaster, we, we have very much to be thankful for. I haven't heard complaints. I haven't heard Bereans that are angry at God because of these very tragic events. What I have heard is prayers of thankfulness that we're not dealing with the loss of lives among our people. And yet I know that you have questions, people have questions about this. What, what is going on? How did this happen? Why did it happen? And why does God allow suffering? And I'm not going to answer that question fully this morning, but I do have some thoughts on it as it relates to our congregation here. I'm certainly thankful that upon returning, returning home that I found that our house was safe and secure. I love the Lord. But I didn't realize that I love my house a whole lot too. And uh, when we got in at 3 a.m. on Thursday morning, I was just, uh, just almost going around and hugging the walls because uh, we still have a, a place to live. But I will say that that in no way diminishes the sorrow that we have for those who are displaced and loved ones uh, who have been. We thank God that he spared us, but also our hearts are very, very heavy with grief for others in their pain and their suffering. And I think that each of us as members of this community really ought to have that in our own hearts, that there is that love and compassion for, for people that we don't even know. Uh, when you hear about it in the news or you drive up the highway and you see what's happened, your heart just has to go out with compassion for people that are going through this. But the most impressive good that I think that comes out of this tragedy is what I've seen from members of Berean. That members of Berean are together, that you have worked together, that you have helped each other, that you have checked on each other. And perhaps in that statement, there lies much of the answer as to why these things happen. Some of the lessons that we learn are very 
hard lessons. They're learned in the hard way. And it's only afterwards that we find out that we have been very, very blessed to have learned those lessons in a very hard way. We believe in the sovereignty of God, and so there's no way that we would try to remove God from this disaster and say, well, God doesn't have anything to do with this. This is the devil's work. Oh, God works in mysterious ways. There's nothing that happens that God doesn't sovereignly control, and neither does God want us to try and vindicate Him for what's happened. God has His purposes, and His purpose is always wiser than our complaints. And so since God is in it, why is God in it? What is God doing? Well, there are some who would say, no doubt, this is chastisement. God is chastising people. Others say that God, God's not in this because God's not powerful enough to stop evil. He can't control evil. And then there are others that will say, well, they can't believe in God. They will not believe in God because a God who can do anything, why did he allow this to happen? Well, why didn't God step in and, and stop this? If that's the way that God works, then God is just too cruel. Well, this could be a very, very long message if I considered all the objections to God's sovereignty. It's going to be a long message anyway, just to get you prepared for that. But uh, it would be very, very long if I tried to deal with all issues concerning God's sovereignty. So I, I choose not to think of that, but rather what this means to our church. That I can see how that God has used this to increase our love for each other. And I see it as a way that God has brought our church together as a family. This, this uh, tragedy has also altered my approach to this text this morning. My message was written long before this happened. Uh, two weeks ago, the message had already been written, was written before that even, but two weeks ago I left town with a copy of the message that, so I'd be able to go over it before coming to Sunday morning and preaching it today. But as, I, as these things developed, the Lord changed my thinking and so on Thursday, when I got home, as I said, I got home at 3 a.m., and um, getting up about three or four hours later, I started to work on this message again. And I started changing things, and I changed the approach. And I want to tell you why I did that. As you know, we've been in, in two very difficult series of messages since the summer of last year. The Ten Commandments series was one that was very, very hard on us. Uh, anyone who compares himself to God's law very quickly discovers how far short that we fall of what God expects, that we can't keep God's commandments, that we are evil, that there's a, we have an evil heart, and we find that the law condemns us, it trounces us, until finally we cry, Uncle, and ask God for mercy. And after studying the law, the only thing that we could do was to prostrate ourselves before God and just thank Him for His mercy and His grace that He would save us, that He preserves us. And at least we can learn this in this firestorm of tragedy over this past week. It's not a question of why did God do this, but it's a question of why didn't God do it already? Why, why have we survived this long? What was God waiting for? We don't deserve to live, we deserve to die. And then after going through the Ten Commandments, we started this series on the seven churches of Revelation. And once again, we find ourselves a text that's just very hard on us. The things that God says, the warnings that are given here about the church's lax morality against weak theology, even hardly understood and believed eschatology, 
The text is hard on us that churches are deep into apostasy. And so Christ warns us in these chapters about failing faith and giving ourselves over to the enticements of the world. And so I was headed in one direction in the message and then the Lord stopped me. It's amazing what a week will do. I was ready to stand in the pulpit today and start hammering you again, as I have for so many weeks. But then we have this tragedy. And the Lord said to me, it's not time for that. It's not, we can do that, but it's not time for that. So I had an outline. You have the outline in your bulletin, and those are the points that are supposed to be in the outline. The outline didn't change. The approach to the outline changed. Not by accident. And not seen before by me, relating to what happened, is a verse of Scripture in our text. It's in the middle of the Lord's own firestorm of rebukes. That is a good verse for us today. And we're going to look at that in just a minute. In the last message, I told you that the church of Thyatira was in an insignificant city. As far as comparing it to the rest of the churches in the other six cities, this city of Thyatira was an insignificant one, and yet the letter to the church there is the longest letter that's written to any of the seven churches. This is a letter that covers the whole gambit, a whole gambit of issues that are economic, they are social, they are theological, they are moral, they are ecclesiastical, they are eschatological. There's just a lot of things to consider in these verses. The Lord commands His church to be holy. He, he tells us to look for sin, that we are to expose sin and forsake sin. And there are many churches that have forsaken the Bible because of this, because you can't do both things. You cannot exposit the Word of God and not deal with sin. You can't tolerate sin and still be faithful to the exposition of Scripture. The very first instructions that Jesus gave to the church when he first introduced the concept of the church was actually about sin. In the book of Matthew, he introduced the church. In the four gospel accounts, the church is only mentioned three times, and all three of those times are in the book of Matthew. And in the very first usage of the word church in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said that I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so that very first time that the church is mentioned, it is in connection with evil and fighting evil and temptations and resisting. And Jesus says, my church will resist evil. We'll fight against evil. We will overcome evil. And then in chapter 18, the two other times that the church is mentioned, they are in connection with the sins those, those, uh, that, that mentioning of the church is in connection with the sins of an erring brother. And it says, if he sins, he is to be confronted. He's to be brought to a confession of that sin. Or he is to be rejected as an unbeliever. That shows us that sin is at the forefront. It's one of the top subjects of the church. And this is because Jesus was concerned to build a church that looks like him. The church is his body. And it's to be sanctified holy and to be set apart from the world. Thyatira was a church that was headed back into the world. They compromised. They compromised with sin. They even manipulated the doctrine of the church to make sin seem acceptable. That it's all right to compromise with the world. But that never works in a Christian church. 
Because sin separates us from the God that we serve. And if we are not separated from sin, then we will be separated from God. And so thus we see that Thyatira is called upon to repent before God makes a move to, re, to remove them from the list of His true churches. You know that things are serious when you read the text and you find out that God says, that Christ says, that I am going to kill you with death and I'm going to send great persecution upon you. That doesn't sound very much like the Jesus that's preached in most churches, but there is a demand for holiness here that cannot be missed. These deep, those that are deep in sin will be rejected, while those who fight sin will be eternally preserved. And so when we exposit Scripture, we can't help this. This is what we have to do. We have to talk about sin. There's no compromise that is accepted for any reason. And so this means if you can save your life by a compromise, Jesus said, then you better lose your life. Those who lose their lives for His sake and the Gospels in the end will be saved. He says this in Mark 8.35, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the Gospels, the same shall save it. Shall save it. Now the last time uh, that I preached the message from this passage, we read the entire text. But it's the longest of the seven letters, and so to save some time for the message today, I chose to read it in the congregational reading. And I thought that it would be helpful that you would read it with me and read certain parts of it. And I think what we've read solidifies the intensity of the letter in our hearts. Now the first few lines of the letter in verse number 18 set the tone for Christ's anger over the sins of the church. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. The pastor of the church received this letter, and I'm sure before he read it to the congregation, he felt the heat of the flames of the fire of the one who wrote this. This was a very hot letter to handle. Now notice how the letter starts. It starts as the previous ones did. Christ makes a significant statement here about himself. So first of all, we have the position that's declared. Immediately, our attention is focused exactly where Christ wants it to be. There's a change in terminology. These things saith the Son of God. And that change draws our attention. Now look back to chapter 1 where John identifies the one who spoke to him. In the 12th and the 13th verses of that first chapter, John says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with the garment to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. In verse number 13, he is the Son of Man. Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of Man. Thirty times in Matthew, fourteen times in Mark, twenty-six times in Luke, eleven times in John. He says the Son of Man. That is eighty-one times. You can contrast that to twenty-eight times that he said the Son of God. He said Son of Man. That's to declare his humanity. So that tree teaches that Jesus was truly human flesh. Hebrews points out the importance of the humanity of Christ 
In the fourth chapter, in verse 15, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Isn't it comforting to know on this Sunday in Ronard Park, this Sunday in Santa Rosa, isn't it comforting to know that Christ is touched with the feeling of our infirmities? After seeing all that's happened around us, all that are hurting, the pain and the suffering, is it not comforting to know that Christ is touched with the feeling of our infirmities? Is that more? Is what's happened more than should be expected for Christians to endure? No. Because we see in a verse like Hebrews 4.15 that Christ has already endured the very same things. That Christ has actually gone through more than we've ever seen. He went through more at the cross because there the fires of God's wrath were unleashed upon Him in all their fury as He suffered for us on the cross. And then His life was a life full of rejection. He had no creature comforts that you and I have. He had no house to love as I love my house. He spent 40 days in the wilderness without food. And what we've done, folks, in this past week have spent our 40 days. And Christ lets us know that He's been there. He's gone through everything that we go through. He knows every pain that we feel. So the Bible is very clear about this, that Jesus was a man. And hundreds of years ago, this issue was very vigorously debated. Was Jesus really a man? And the Scriptures were affirmed, yes, Jesus was fully human. Eighty-one uses of the Son of Man in the Gospel accounts alone, plus all the many other references that we have in the Scripture, prove to us that Jesus was truly a man. First John was written for that purpose. Many said Jesus was not really a man. He just appeared to be a man. He was a spirit, but he never actually assumed human flesh. That's all an apparition. Many times I've explained the motive in that teaching. The motive was sin. The reasoning was that the flesh is sinful, but that sin in the flesh has no effect on the spirit, and so therefore we can sin as much as we want. Well, the flesh itself is not sinful. Jesus couldn't have been a man if the flesh itself is sinful. Jesus couldn't have been human if their teaching was right. But their teaching was not right. That's a heresy that developed in the church. And actually, you may not even realize it or recognize it, but this is the excuse for sin in the church at Thyatira. What we have here is the Gnostic teaching about the flesh, this old Greek idea that the flesh doesn't matter that And this provided them with an excuse to sin. We can compromise with sin without consequence. Well, Jesus says, all right, if you think that's what gives you the excuse, then he comes with a different description. He comes with the full authority of God. And so purposely, he changes the terms. And in verse 18, son of man is changed to son of God. And that's to show us that not only is he fully human, but he is also fully God. If they mistake his humanity, they will not mistake his deity. And why don't they mistake his, de his deity? Because they never would have become Christians if they didn't believe that Jesus was God. Now that's not to say that Christians can believe that Jesus is God and not man, and you can still be a Christian. No, this is just a confusion of heresy in the church by false teachers, and that false teaching was threatening the survival of this church. 
So Jesus came to them with the authority of God and He told them that their flirtation with and their acceptance of sin will not stand. That their rejection of strong doctrine, Christian doctrine, and their apostasy will not stand. And so to drive that point home, He speaks in terms of judgment. His eyes are as a flame of fire and His feet are like fine brass. Now let me explain that to you because that's what you do in expository preaching. If you attend on Sunday nights, you already know this. We've been studying Old Testament sacrifices at the tabernacle. And folks, the imagery that we see spoken here in Revelation 2 comes straight from there. In the tabernacle courtyard, there was an altar that was called the brazen altar. Brazen means that it was made of brass. And on this altar... The daily sacrifices were made. And when the very first sacrifice was made on that altar, there was fire that came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice on that altar. And the sacrifice was burned up. Before the sacrifice was put there, before it was made, the sins of the people were confessed on that animal, and then the animal was burned. And that was a symbol of God's judgment falling on sin And that animal represented the coming sacrifice of Jesus Christ when He would be judged on God's altar. And that altar was the cross. So there is fire and there is a brass altar. And whenever you see those two things in Scripture, that symbolizes God's judgment. Now all of that may be foreign to your thinking. doesn't register maybe with you. But in the context of the church and the time of Thyatira, they knew exactly what that meant. And so they opened the letter, and they saw fire, and they saw brass. And their mouths gaped open, and they say, Oh no, this is not good. Fire and brass mean judgment. The acceptance of sin into the church brought a dreaded letter of judgment. So he says to them, Pick as many excuses as you want. You are not going to escape judgment. Do you understand? You play with fire, and you get burned. You play with sin, and God will judge. You think it doesn't matter? He says to them, you think it doesn't matter? Do you say the spirit and the flesh are too far separated that the sins of the flesh don't affect you spiritually? Then he said, try again. Your doctrine is wrong. You have ignored the Scriptures. You've walked away from this command to be holy as God is holy. So I think that we can identify the problem in Thyatira. Many in the church were not really Christians. They professed to be Christians, but they were not. Because true Christians do not continue in sin. The attitude of the believer is changed towards sin. He hates sin. He wants to get as far away from sin as he can get. And when he falls into sin, then he wants to get out of it as quickly as he can. He's not going to stay in sin. And that's because the Holy Spirit will do to him just what he did to the church at Thyatira. And so we need to ask the question, was this fire about sin? Is this God's judgment because of sin? And I'll have to tell you that I don't know the mind of God on this. That I can't make it a theological maxim that this is because this area is a hotbed of sin, as well now as a hotbed of embers. I can't make that judgment. 
But I do know this, that the lost and the saved alike have been affected by this. The eyes of a flame of fire, the feet like fine brass, certainly tells us this, that the judgment of God is coming. And if there's anything that can be learned from this, it is that if God uses fire, as the Bible says, then when fire comes from God, it's going to be worse in the judgment than what we've just seen. The soul is headed to fire without Christ. And really, there's no one who needs to complain about that. Don't complain about what's happened. No one can complain even that God is not good. And you know why? Because God has just sent a strong warning again that He gives people time to repent. He's gracious enough not to have destroyed us already. He gives time to repent. And He shows us this kind of devastation as an example of what can happen. No one deserves to escape the fire. And He's telling us, though, that there is not one person who needs to go through the fire. No, not if you take the evacuation route. There's a gracious evacuation route that's better than the one and better than the home that you left behind. The way to escape it is to trust Christ. There aren't any mountains to climb with fire hoses and fires to put out. There's no digging of trenches, no shovels that need to be brought out to protect us from fire, to make the breaks against the fire, because God doesn't call on us to work for any of this. He only asks that we trust. He's gracious enough to put a warning sign in front of us that comes to us in no uncertain time terms. Flee the fire and come to Him by faith. All are going to stand before God and either your sins are covered under the blood of Jesus Christ or they will be judged in the flames of fire. So we ought not to complain that God has put this marvelous sign in front of this community. Thank Him that we know this, that God will save sinners. When they come to Him in repentance and faith, God saves sinners. Now, having said that, we come to the positives of this church. Verse number 19, I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. So number two is the positives detected. Yes, despite all of the compromises, there are some in this church that remain faithful. The faithful are the ones that held the church together, that kept God's judgment from falling already. And He is not going to pass judgment on all until He acknowledges and commends those that are just. So He says, I know thy works. That's the Lord's pattern throughout these letters. There's something good for the church, and if it's there, He will note it. And there are some good characteristics that are found that indicate there are some in this membership that were indeed Christians. I don't believe that the Lord would commend them if these aren't Christian works that He's speaking of. Twice in the verse, He says, works. But know this, that a church can have problems and still have good works. How does a, how does a Thyatiran church compare with churches today? Well, there are churches that do good works. There are churches that feed the homeless, they help unwed mothers, they counsel on pregnancy and abortion, they have reformation programs for substance abuse, they contribute to community projects, as we've just seen in this fire, many churches have 
things that are going on to support the community and have provided some kind of relief. And so the works are multiplied. But all of these kinds of works can be done without good doctrine. These are things that can be done without the gospel. Because these are things that are also done by secular organizations where there is no gospel. And so churches can do good things without doing what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5 or what Jesus said in Matthew 18. They can do all of these things without dealing with sin that keeps the church internally pure. They don't talk about sin, but they have a lot of good works. Now obviously there were saved people in the church at Thyatira. The, the, church, the Lord never would have taken the time to address them if they're just a secular organization. But these are people that are church people. It's a church that's headed in the wrong direction. It's a church that's headed for judgment. And why haven't they been judged yet? That's the question. Why haven't they been judged yet? And the answer to that is because of the good works mentioned in verse number 19. What are their good works? Well, first we see a present love. Some of them are still clinging to a Christ-like love. Here in this text, we see the word, the word charity. And there's much made about the King James word charity, the original word. The modern usage has somewhat been changed since 1611. We define charity more commonly as benevolence or as philanthropy. Charity is when you give to poor people or when you give to worthy causes. But I don't believe that's what Jesus means in this verse. Lost people, pagans, can be charitable. So he must mean more than that. He must mean something more because he sets this part, this, this group in the church apart from others as being different from the others. And so he must mean something else. He must mean their love for God that they are true worshipers and they prove their love for God by these good works and those good works are a product of their love. Now I want to make this point again that the sincerity of these Christians for a time had staved off God's judgment against the church. Now I know that there are many people who make fun of Christians who earnestly try to live for the Lord. Even some in our own church may make fun of others who are really, really trying to love and serve the Lord. And you know what they call them? They call them the holier-than-thou Christians. And the reason they do is because they're holier than them. They're the holier-than-thou Christians. But these are the Christians that are very concerned about how their kids grow up. They keep their kids in church. They, they aren't playing other things, doing other things on Sunday. They're not involved in other activities. These are people that may be strict enough that they've thrown the TV out the second story window. These are members of the church that demand that their teenagers get in by 10 o'clock and they question every friend that their children hang out with. Oh, their methods are different from yours. You decided that's too much overload. That's too puritanical to live that way. But you need to think again. Because these may very well be the Christians that are preserving the church from judgment. You're loose in the way that you live, but they aren't. And Christ regards the remnant that still stands for Him. So you have to be very careful about who you criticize. Who has the right motives? Is it you or is it them? And the same is true in societies. 
We talked about this a few weeks ago in our study of Leviticus chapter 4, that God judges whole societies, not just the individuals of the society. And when the majority in the society has gone too far away from God, He brings judgment on all. The saved will still be saved, they'll be kept from eternal judgment, but they're going to be swept away as well in the temporal judgment. Same thing can happen with the church. God may sweep away a church. The individuals, that individual church ends its existence as one of the Lord's New Testament bodies, but at the same time, the righteous in the church are preserved from eternal judgment. This is what we see in Thyatira, a church that's ready to be swept away in judgment, but Christ recognizes the just that are among them. Now, in this catastrophe... There have been many good works. The community has been benevolent. There have been a lot of good things that have gone on. We ought not to confuse our doctrine on this point. Some of you may think, well, our doctrine is lost people can never do good things. That lost people are incapable of good things. No, they do good things. Obviously, they do good things. The compassion of our community has been shown many times over and over again. And so when the Bible says that there are none righteous, no, not one, what it's talking about is that none of these things that we do, none of these things can actually avail to the saving of our soul. That our sins against God are too severe. They can't be overcome by setting up shelters and by passing out water, and giving food to people. That's not going to overcome the sins that we have committed. Now, we love our firefighters. We love the policemen who've selflessly given themselves to, to help people, to save people in the fires. I've read stories of firefighters who lost their own homes while saving the homes of others. Those are good works. But those aren't the kind of works that will save us. Now, there's a simple theological principle that solves this question. Can good works save us? Well, if they could, then Jesus never would have needed to die. Why would He die for us if we can save ourselves? Now, no doubt we can do good things, but they aren't sufficient to satisfy God for sin. Only God can satisfy God. And therefore, Christ had to become a man and die to satisfy God. He is God satisfying God. And do you know that's the best news that you could ever hear? You don't want to be saved by good works. You could never do enough. And you'd be struggling and fighting all the time to be the best that you can be and still never get there. This is the best news that you can hear, that Jesus Christ has satisfied God for us. Keep doing good works. Because those reflect the character of a gracious God. But depend only on Jesus Christ for your salvation. Now let me talk for just a minute about the love of this church. I think of that church, I think of our church. I look at it and I see that our church is healthy. We're not the Thyatiran church because we have love in our church. Without this large faction of people, of members that Thyatira had, that were a disgrace and harmed the church through their lifestyles. So I don't believe that's our problem. We don't have that problem. As I was worried about our people when I was in Kentucky, my phone was constantly ringing. 
Texts were being sent. I was getting texts all the time about how our church body was doing and how people were looking out for one another. Now, interestingly, I heard some criticism from someone who was outside the church. This was a former member of the church that criticized us for not opening our doors to evacuees. Now, let me explain that to you for just a minute. There has to be a connection to relief agencies for us to do that. There has to be 24-hour staffing for us to be able to do it. There have got to be cots, there have got to be blankets, there's got to be food, there's got to be all kinds of supplies that have to be here. Otherwise, our attempts to help become another disaster for those who could get help in the many things that they need in the places and the shelters that aren't full, that are taking care of those things. But I will tell you this, that through all of this, there were members of our church that were willing to take in people into their homes. If somebody didn't, somebody didn't have a place to go, they said, we have room, we'll take you in. So the criticism is not fair. That's a shot that's taken by those who have an axe to grind. But we expect that to happen. Whenever we stand for the truth, people are going to look at ways to get at us. And no, matter, no amount of good that we will ever do will stop them from trying to do it because they just don't like us. But I saw what we did. And that leads me to our next commendation for this church. Next is prevalent service. Service is the word diaconia. We get ministry from that word. We also get deacon from that word. And I thought about this. Is there some significance in this word relating to deacons? So let me tell you a little bit about deacons. Our deacons did a fantastic job. To be honest, sometimes people complain about deacons. They're watched. They are scrutinized. They're complained against. Let's stand back for a minute and let's just think about our deacons in this crisis. I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands, but I know that many of you, if not all of you, were con contacted by deacons, by your deacon, to see if you are okay. Especially if you live in one of those threatened areas, you were called, you were checked on. I kept getting calls and updates from our deacons telling me about how you were doing. I was away, but they took charge and they took matters into their hands to make sure that you were okay. I couldn't be here, but they were. Now let me explain that to you. Deacons are stewards in God's house. They handle ministry concerns that otherwise would take away too much time from pastor's study and preparation for preaching and teaching. And so the pastor has to be sure that the deacons handle those responsibilities and that they are proper models for the people. Now, you think of it this way. If deacons have duties that I would otherwise be doing, if not for them, then they represent me in those duties. And so if they're bad examples, they hinder my ministry here. And this is the reason that the qualifications for pastors and deacons are strikingly similar. You read 1 Timothy chapter 3, and after giving the rigid qualification for the pastors, Paul discusses the deacons. And in verse number 8 of that chapter, he begins this way, Likewise must the deacons. And that little word, likewise, links us together. It links the pastor and the deacons together so that everything that you expect to see in me, you also expect to see in the deacons. 
And the only difference that there is between me and them is the singular responsibility for the entire ministry of the church. The deacons make me look good. I'm not going to complain about the deacons because they quit themselves like godly men. They made our ministry look good. It's better than I could do myself. And so I stand this morning in the shadow of our deacons and I say, look to them because they're the ones that did this, not me. Thank God for our deacons. Now, I know that they were watching for you, but I also know they were watching for me. They went over and checked my house. They wanted to know about my needs. They offered help for me. You know, I'm a member too. And they bless me with their help. Now please remember the service of the deacons the next time you want to complain. The deacons are busy men. Do you understand that these men are not like me in this regard? They don't have, they, I'm a paid, paid person in the church. In fact, I'm the only staff person, full-time staff person in the church. But the deacons aren't paid. And the deacons have families. And the deacons have jobs. And the deacons were affected by the fires also. And they have family members that were affected by the fires also. And they have their concerns about their jobs and everything that's going on at the same time. But they were willing to help you and to help me because they love you and they love me and they love the ministry of the Berean Baptist Church. This is a great church. And sometimes it takes a catastrophe like this to raise our awareness and our appreciation of those who serve God for us and for our good. The disaster proves it. It doesn't diminish our estimation of God. It enhances our reverence for God because He's shown you how He can provide for you in your time of greatest need. Now here's another good thing about the fire tyrant church. Amidst all the bad that will come later, and it does come, we also learn this about their persistent faith. It's easy to criticize Thyatira. We can make them the whipping boy. And we say, well, why wasn't this whole church faithful? How can they let the things that came into this church, how can they let evil enter into the church? And so we are so smug in our proneness to evaluate the sins of others. Be very careful of judgment until you have walked in the same shoes. We're not threatened daily with our lives and livelihood like they were. Now this past week might have been an exception, but I, I think I can note there's none of you that's starving. There's none of you that are without any kind of help and you have no means of support. And you also ought to be careful about criticizing when you don't have all the facts. You don't know everything that another person goes through. Is that an excuse for their sin? No, it's not. But sympathy for what other people go through can turn your criticisms into prayers for them. Now let me return to the last thought for a minute. Maybe you feel compelled to sock it to the deacons because you don't like something they do. So I'll just ask you, is it better for you to hammer a deacon? Or is it better for you to come alongside of them and help them in their weaknesses? Your ability to spot a flaw is only as good as your ability to deal with your own. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. This verse, chapter 7, verse number 1, is probably the most misinterpreted scripture in all of the Bible. Many verses in the Bible, but I think this is probably the most misinterpreted. Out of it comes, don't ever judge anybody. You can't judge people. That's not what Jesus said. 
He's not saying there's no criteria to judge anybody. If that was true, I could never get up here and preach a sermon about sin. No, he's saying that you are not qualified to judge until you have judged yourself and taken care of your own sin. It's better to bear the burdens of others than it is to pile more on them. And so, the Lord didn't give Christians in Thyatira a license to sin because it's so hard to live there and there's so much persecution, there's so much going on. And He didn't give them a pass because of verse number 19. Some of them were faithful, but all of them could have been faithful if they did what some of them did. It wasn't impossible with God, because with God all things are possible. And this is because every single Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, has the same Holy Spirit living in him. We all have the same Holy Spirit. The problem is, and in the same measure of the the Holy Spirit we have him, the problem is we all do not yield to the power of the Holy Spirit in the same measure. Now you compare that aspect to modern Christianity... We have little, very little persecution, and yet we are in the same trap of disobedience as these people were. You know what that proves to us? It proves that the determining factor of true holiness is not persecution. That's not the thing that keeps us from being holy. No, what we're talking about is an internal problem of the heart and the mind of a Christian. That's what causes sin. Now, we have an opportunity to do great things for God. And that's because we have very little hindrance. There's no real persecution for us. And yet we look and we see how we squandered the opportunities that God has given. When I was on vacation in July, Jason taught the forum class. And I'll say that I am very grateful for every man who steps up to preach when I'm not here. And I'm blessed to have willing, dependable, qualified men. But I mentioned this before. I listened to Jason's lesson on the way home from vacation back in July. And I joked with him when I got back that he'd made all the retirees in the church mad. And we have a few, and there goes our offerings, even though they all leave. I'm not going to rehearse his lesson, but I do appreciate the truths of that lesson. I've heard many Christians make the excuse, I can't come to church, and I can't work in the church because of my job. I've just got so much to do in my job, I don't have time. And of course, we often have to accept the legitimacy of some of those excuses. But then the day comes that a person retires. And what do those Christians do? Do they still have all the constraints that they had when they had to work and and, uh, they couldn't work in the church and they can't and they couldn't serve then? Do they have those constraints any longer? And you know the answer to the question. No, they don't. Do they do anything in the church though? No. Why? Because we're retired. Retirement's the time to travel. Retirement's the time for our golden years of vacation. Now we can do all the things that we couldn't do while we were working. Except one. Work in the church. I'm not opposed to vacations and time off. I take vacations. Ask Janet. She keeps track of every day that I'm, that I'm off. So I take vacations... But let me remind all of you that we have eternity to retire. Lay up treasures in heaven now and travel on what you've banked in eternity. You can go anywhere you want. 
to see all the sights of a new universe that no one's mind can fathom. You say you want to see the seven wonders of the world now? Well, just wait when you see all the wonders of God's new heaven and new earth. Things your mind can never fathom. You know, there are many Christians who say they believe in rewards, but you know they don't really believe in rewards. And if they do, they have such a degraded view of eternity that they think their time here is better spent doing what they want to do rather than to do the Lord's work. I know that we get old. Finally, we come to the place that the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But I'm afraid there are too many Christians that are neither too weak nor too willing to do God's work. But I don't want to end this sermon on that point and with that comment. Others besides the deacons, have helped. You don't have to have a title to help. This is not about rank. We all serve in the place where God puts us, and you folks are laborers. You have faith. This is your church, and by the grace of God and by the God of heaven, you act like Christ. And so many of you have borne the burdens of others. You have esteemed others better than yourself. Look not every man on the others, the things of others, but every, or look not every man on his own things, I should say, but uh, every man on the things of others. You did that. That shows you have the mind of Christ who gave himself for others. And so fourthly, and I conclude the exposition of verse 19 with this, persevering patience. Those words are actually redundant. They mean the same thing. It's okay, because the double emphasis is appropriate. Patience is perseverance. This is patient patience, or persevering perseverance. And I want to double that because it is a critical doctrine. And we can certainly double it today because of what has happened. It is our duty to persevere. And it's the gracious God and His influences that make it possible for us to persevere, which makes perseverance one of the doctrines of grace. The doctrine is too detailed for the purposes of this message, it's beyond the scope, so I can only just mention it. Christians have a duty to persevere in the faith, and they shall. True Christians remain faithful to their commitment. They are faithful in their service. They work out their salvation with fear and trembling. A person that does not persevere is not a Christian. And I'm not preaching a work salvation. I'm preaching biblical Christianity. It's true that Christians will be preserved in their salvation. They can't be lost. All Baptists stipulate to it. That's what you hear often as once saved, always saved. But it's as much true that Christians will persevere in their faith, which a large number of Baptists will not stipulate to. But we maintain the biblical doctrine that a lack of persevering faith is a lack of evidence of saving faith. And that's undeniable when our Lord explicitly declares the doctrine in Matthew 10, 22. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. You see that word endureth? Same word as patience. And we see it again in the, what is it, the 26th verse of, of this text in chapter 2. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. Now, you can't argue with me because Jesus is the one who said this. If you are to be saved in the end, you must persevere. And you will if you're saved at the first. Jesus said you must persevere even though the world hates you, also known as persecution. 
And so the question is, is it less a requirement to persevere when you have none? No, we must persevere in this calamity that we've just experienced. Watch people in the church who say they're believers, but they give no evidence. Christ says they're not believers. The Apostle John, who wrote the words of Christ in the Revelation, expressed the same in his first letter when he said in 1 John 2.19, when he talked there about persevering Christians, those who stick it out. And who could read Paul and not see a life of perseverance and insistence that all Christians do the same? So you take less work, less stock in a person's words than their deeds. By their fruits ye shall know them. The Scripture says, Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Those are all biblical concepts of saving faith. And so let me just mention that there are some in our church who have trials on top of trials. There are some of you that have problems of health. Some of you have problems in your family. You have problems with your job. And then on top of all of that, here comes this trouble, an unexpected wildfire, and now you are severely tested, and yet there are Christians that hold on. And I will tell you folks, that is a mark of true saving faith. Now thank God that you're here today. You did a good thing by coming to church. But you know something? I'm not ready to concede that going to church is enough to prove your Christianity. The church at Thyatira had people that went to church. The question is, what were they doing the other six and a half days of the week? That speaks more to the claim of Christianity than coming to hear me preach for... Well, it's been a long time today. What is your love for your church? What is your service to your church? What is your faith? What is your patience? Are those things to be commended? Are you one who preserves the church? Or are you a reason for the Lord's rebuke? You know, I said long ago when we started this series, we're going to find ourselves in the middle of these letters. I just didn't know that it would happen in the way that it did. And so here we are, hit with a great trial of faith, and thus far our church has withstood the test. So I encourage Bereans, stand strong. Support our community, and especially each other. The Lord will not forget your labor of love. Now unfortunately, the Lord goes on in verse 20 to hammer the church at Thyatira. The faithful in the church were not enough to stave off God's rebuke and judgment. Next time we're going to get into that part, but not this time, because this is not a day of rebuke for Berean. This is a day of commendation. Thank God for Berean Baptist Church. You have heard and obeyed what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, for the things that we've read about this church. How we can take that and find things that our church should be doing. In the midst of all the troubles that this church had, there were godly people. There were some who were holding out faithful, some who still loved, some who were still serving. And Lord, in this church, we're thankful that we have all of those, all of those things. We have people that are enduring hard times. And I just pray that your blessings would be upon them. Help them, Lord. Strengthen them in this time. Help us not to despair, but still to reach out to others and this is going to go on for a long, long time. Uh, people are going to be suffering for a long, long time because of what's just happened. Lord, help us not to forget them. 
help us to still have that compassion and to help where it's, where it's needed. And especially, as the Word of God says, pay attention to those who are of the household of the faith. Help our brothers and sisters in Christ. And may we be a church that will do this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.